Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. More twists and turns for the vaccine rollout. But what does it mean for over 70s? A Sonister warns rollout may be slower than planned. Former head of the HSE, Tony O'Brien, will be with us. And will the threat of new variants be the biggest challenge to opening up the country? Virologist and chair of ENFIT's COVID expert advisory group, Dr Killian de Gascoon, joins us. And later in the programme, mixed messages over travel. An expert in infectious diseases says we can do more when it comes to cross-border travel controls. And it's World Cancer Awareness Day, so we'll be hearing from the host of the Good Glow podcast, Georgie Crawford, on the importance of getting checked. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. Our first guest this evening is Dr. Killian de Gascoon, virologist and director of the National Virus Reference Laboratory and chair of ENFIT's COVID-19 Expert Advisory Group. And I am aware that the vaccination programme vaccines is not your area of expertise or responsibility. But as a member of ENFIT, you must have concerns to make sure that this job is done properly. So do you have any concerns about the delay that there may be now for the over 70s as a result of the decisions made about the AstraZeneca vaccine? No, I think the the key thing at the moment is obviously to roll out vaccination as, as quickly and effectively as possible. And I think if you look at what the HSE has managed to achieve over recent weeks, it compares very favourably with our European counterparts. The, the decision around the AstraZeneca vaccine I think is the right decision in the context of the data that we have available. We have no concerns about safety of the vaccine or anything like that. It's simply a feature of the fact that the studies that have been done to date didn't have a, a large number of um, the older patients. So what we have seen based on the immunogenic immunogenicity data, so based on how the um, vaccine elicits an immune response, we believe that it works very well. The problem is the number of cases that have been detected in the older cohorts in the vaccine studies has been quite small. So it's likely that it will be effective. But at this point in time, when we have a two vaccines that have a, an efficacy report, a reported efficacy rate of 95%, uh, it's really important that the most vulnerable groups get those get the vaccine with the highest efficacy. And how many people do you feel need to be vaccinated to provide an overall population protection against COVID-19? So in crude terms, the, the threshold that you need to get to for community level protection probably relates to the transmissibility of the infection. So if you look at something like measles, for example, that has an or naught of between 12 and 18. So you need to get to 95%. For SARS-CoV-2, we believe now that the or naught in, in, in the unmitigated setting is probably somewhere between four and six. 
We know that the new variant first reported in the UK might be a little bit higher than that, but it's only a, a proportion higher. So it's not changing it dramatically, but it probably means that we need to get to 80 to 85% of the population before we can have a community level protection. But what's important at this stage is that and actually, this is in, I suppose, beneficial for the AstraZeneca vaccine. They brought out data suggesting that they will have an impact on transmissibility of the infection as well. So what we've seen from the mRNA vaccines to date is that they're very good at reducing the severity of disease and preventing hospitalizations, preventing mortalities. So that's really important. But what's also important at a population level is that people who have been vaccinated don't transmit the virus as readily as others. Of course, we've had a dreadful January with the amount of deaths that we've had, the amount of confirmed new cases being more than we had in the entirety of 2020. And today we're seeing 75 further deaths, not a 1,300 new cases. How quickly can we get those numbers down, do you think? What are your ambitions in that regard? So the press briefing this evening, Professor Philip Nolan was speaking about what we've got to do over the next four to six weeks. I, I think it's the first thing to say is that people have done remarkably well. Like we're while we're coming from a very high level of numbers that we had um, over the December, January period, people have managed to get the or naught down to between 0.5 and 0.8. We've reduced numbers significantly from seven, 8,000 cases a day to a five-day rolling average now of about 1,100. So we've done really well. The problem is 1,100 is still really incredibly high. Our 14-day cumulative incidence has just dropped below 400 per 100,000. And if people think back to the summer, we were less than three for a period of time, and we were reporting case numbers in single digits on some days. And how long will it take us to get back to that? Because the reason I ask is that that presumably is going to be tied to the loosening of restrictions. Yeah, absolutely. So what we think is that if we, if we can keep the or not where it is. So the, at the moment, based on the decline over the, we've seen over the last number of weeks, the, the halving rate, if you like, or the halving time for the epidemic is in the region of eight to 12 days. So if we look at that, we could be, if we can manage to sustain the effort that we have at the moment, by the middle of February, we may be about 50% of where we are now. And by the end of February, we might be another 50% again. So we would still have probably two and or three hundred cases a day. Would that bring us far enough to actually loosen the restrictions? I think we have to be, like, because we have vaccines available now, I, my personal opinion is that I think we need to be really cautious about, about restrictions. And I'm not trying to predict anything or preempt anything, but we saw what happened at the start of December when we got to 250 cases there or thereabouts. We wanted to get below 100, down to around 50. Basically, the lower that we can get, that we ideally we would get back to levels that we saw in the summer because that gives us the most leeway, if you like, and the most wriggle room as we try, as we start to open up again. But the difference now is that we do have the vaccine. So it's really important that we hold firm for as long as we can and get as low as possible. Does everybody in Nenford have much the same view as to what you need to get the numbers down to and on the loosening of restrictions? Or do you have debate about it? We, we have significant debate purely because we know how difficult this is for people. You know, like certainly there are lots of, there are lots of vulnerable groups that have that are struggling um, with the with level five restrictions, people who live by themselves, people in direct provision, people in um, who people who have underlying conditions that mean that they haven't been able to see friends or family for a long period of time. So there's significant challenges. But the problem is we know that if the pandemic or if the epidemic gets out of control, that's very detrimental to everybody's health as well. So there's certainly a significant debate at, at Neffet as to 
what the best approach is. But I suppose our primary concerns are, as we've identified for the last number of months, would be around our, our protecting our most vulnerable, um, trying to preserve education insofar as we can, and also protecting the health service. And we're, we're thankfully we're seeing the numbers in hospitals start to drop. Do you ever take economic considerations into account? All the people who are out of work on the pandemic employment payment. About the longer this goes on, for the more difficult it might be for many people to get back to work. We're, we're certainly cognizant of it in the background, but it's not where our expertise lies. And obviously that's why it's really important that there's a cross-governmental approach to this um, pandemic. But I suppose our remit is to try and provide the best advice that we can from a health perspective to government so that they can make the best decisions. Okay, talk to me about the variants, because this is something in your area of expertise. And we heard today a UK minister talking about 4,000 variants of COVID. I mean, what does that mean? And is it important and dangerous? Uh, so I didn't hear those comments, but I think it's important for people to realise that, that viruses evolve all the time. So we know that coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2 typically acquires mutations of a rate at about one to two per month. So any virus that is currently circulating is no more than about probably 20 to 24 mutations away from the original strain that came out of Wuhan last year. What's interesting about the variants of concern that we have is that they have more mutations than we would expect at this point in time in the pandemic. So they've obviously been exposed to additional evolutionary pressure. And what's really important for us to learn about them is if we can figure out where they came from, we might be able to prevent them emerging in the future. So we know that they've either been exposed perhaps in a persistent infection for somebody who's immunocompromised, so it's a suboptimal immune response. We obviously saw with the variant from Denmark in mink that if viruses go through an animal host, the rate of evolution may change and then they can spill back Does over back into humans. Does that mean then that those viruses may be more deadly or may be more easily transmitted? So the key thing is that at that this stage we have evidence that they're more easily transmitted and that makes it more challenging to control and I think that's why it's important, I suppose, to, to feed back to people as to what they've managed to achieve in Ireland over the last few weeks because they've managed to bring an or naught down to between 0.5 and 0.8 even with this more transmissible variant that was first described in the UK, the lineage B117, which now accounts as of the data we have up to last Sunday accounts for about 75% of our cases. We can't change the numbers who travelled into the country before Christmas and indeed over the Christmas period even if flights for Britain were not locked down but should we be doing more given that given this increased transmissibility about preventing people from coming into the country? So I think the key thing that we've been trying to say all along is, is to avoid travel. I think it's, uh, government has been has moved in recent days to uh, improve the restrictions about coming into country, about people requiring a negative PCR test and people and requiring mandatory quarantine. They're all really important steps. But the key thing is to try and stop importations in the first place. So we don't want people traveling if we can avoid it at all. So avoiding non-essential travel is, is the key measure. But certainly if people are traveling here, we want to ensure that A, they're not infected when they arrive, which is the pre-travel PCR test and B that if we know that that's not perfect because people may be incubating the infection so therefore that's even when they do arrive they still have that quarantine period. Well is that an argument then for mandatory quarantine in a set destination for everybody coming in? Certainly if we look at countries that have been very successful in controlling um, importation of infections the likes of Australia the likes of New Zealand mandatory quarantine um, has worked has been very successful there have been slip-ups where infections have been acquired so it's not um, necessarily perfect but it, the key thing is, I suppose, if you look at the, the travel that we have coming into our country, we're obviously part of a, a large European Union, so we're not quite the same as, as the likes of New Zealand or Australia. But at the same time, if you have large numbers, it's also very difficult to identify, to, to implement a, I suppose, a mass quarantine structure for, for that large number. So we do know that 
the... Sorry, that sounds like a, a suggestion that we should have, as in New Zealand and Australia, because of the various ways that pe people can come in and places designated centres for them. So government is looking at that at the moment for Brazil and South Africa because of the other variants yeah, of concern variants that we're worried about. Yeah, but those variants can everywhere, can't they? Yeah, no, there's certainly a concern. Now, we know that they're obviously predominantly associated, they've predominantly associated with those countries, but we know that people have also travelled through other countries. So the reason that we want the quarantine applying across the board is because you're right, people may travel. We don't have a lot of direct flights with those jurisdictions, so people may come through the UK, people may come through um, Brussels or Amsterdam or Paris. So we have to ensure that the quarantine is there across the board. But obviously, we're particularly concerned about these variants purely because they we know that they're more transmissible, and certainly in the South African case, they may have an impact on the vaccine Would efficacy. that not suggest that you're in considerable sympathy with a lot of your scientific colleagues who are arguing for a zero COVID approach? I think so. I think there's a lot of commonality between what Neffet has been recommending and what zero COVID, the zero COVID approach is because we want to obviously produce the number of infections coming into the country. But the problem is from a sustainability perspective, the zero COVID argument is, is very difficult to sustain in the long term, purely because in essence, you are sealing borders for a protracted period of time. And the thing is, we're obviously very fortunate here. We have vaccination. We hopefully get up to a threshold of immunity over the coming sort of six to 12 months as depending on supply chains. But the thing is, if we get to that level, people will naturally want to start traveling again. And the rest of the country, uh, the rest of the globe, I should say, isn't necessarily going to be vaccinated to the same level. So you're always going to have that risk of reimporting infections. So we do want to get levels down to a very low base, but we then we need to have the public health infrastructure that allows us to track and trace in real time and in essence go chasing the virus. It's something that we weren't in a position to do last summer because we didn't have the public health resources. So. The key thing is that there's an awful lot the, of the, the primary issue for us here is to get case numbers down as low as possible. That's what uh, a lot of scientists advocating for zero COVID wants. That's what we want as well, because it allows us to control the virus and to take and to get well, back in control. Final one on that. You mentioned how last summer that the numbers went down. Some people did go on foreign holidays, not too many. Uh, a lot of people took holidays here in Ireland. Do you anticipate the numbers will drop this summer again to allow people to have at least some freedom from outside the five kilometre zones to which they're stuck at present? It's really difficult, I suppose, to predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, I would hope that we will get case numbers down very low again. And I would hope that, but I would think, I think where we are at this point in time, we don't want people planning foreign holidays. Like the, there's been an awful lot of focus on the UK variant, uh, so-called UK variant. But if we look to the virus or the, the lineage that was dominant before that variant arrived, it was a Spanish variant that traveled across Europe during the summer and was first associated with agriculture farming workers in Northern Spain. So the virus will travel if people travel. And I think for what we're hoping to try and do is get people to, um, I suppose, bear with us for uh, this, the rest of this year until we can get things back to normal. Our thanks to Dr Killian de Gascoon for joining us here on The Tonight Show. Now, for more reaction to today's vaccine news, we're joined by the former Director General of the HSE, Strategic Council and Business Post columnist, Tony O'Brien. Tony, thank you very much for joining us. Would you regard the news in relation to the changed approach to over 70s vaccination as a bit of a setback? Uh, not really a setback. Obviously, it would have been ideal if the evidence allowed the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine to be available to the over 70s. But I think, as Dr. de Gascon has pointed out, there is demonstrated evidence that it has superior efficacy to provide the over 70s with the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. 
And so I think it's simply the right decision to, to make. As the HSE outlined today, they need a couple of days to figure out the logistical implications. But other than that, they're on track to commence that program by the middle of the month as they were before. It would have been ideal, obviously, if all the vaccines had equal efficacy, but we're on a journey. It's remarkable that we have these vaccines at all. And I think it's also significant that today the HSE reported that 220,000 vaccines have been administered, uh, which means that more vaccines have been administered now than people who've, who've had positive tests for COVID. So that's an important milestone, and I would be reasonably optimistic that that progress can continue. Which is certainly encouraging. But in relation to the AstraZeneca vaccines, if they're not going to be given to the over 70s, who should they be given to and how quickly, rather than perhaps leaving them in a fridge somewhere? Well, I don't believe there's any plan to leave them in a fridge. There are substantial other people in priority groups who are not over 70 who have yet to receive the vaccine. And my understanding is the HSE's plan is to complete the vaccination programme for healthcare workers, which is not yet complete, and then to continue on moving down through other priority groups. So nobody's being left out. The plan remains the plan, just the sequence of who gets what vaccine has been changed based on emerging evidence. And there may well be further instances of emerging evidence changing the detail of the plan. How important, though, will it be to have clear communication? Because there may be many people, older people, who are now feeling disappointed or worried when they hear that they're not going to get the vaccine as quickly as they first thought. Yeah, that's obviously a concern. And communication is always a challenge when there are so many variables in terms of what vaccines will be available in the country and when. But the reassurance is that this has been decided in order to give them the vaccine that has been demonstrated to be most effective for them. And I think that's what people would want, to have the best vaccine for them, taking into account all of the emerging evidence. And this decision is, is one that's been made in common with lots of other European countries who've gone down a similar road. So there should be some reassurance in that as well. But what about the situation now that with these vaccines that are going to be used for the over 70s that need to be in cold storage before use, that it's not going to be something that perhaps GPs can actually give out, so that it's going to have to be hubs and centres. How well or how difficult do you think might that be to operate, and for older people in particular, to get to those rather than to their local GP? Well, the, the HSE has already been administering vaccine through hubs, and indeed these large vaccination centres were the approach used in the UK, in Britain and in Northern Ireland for the older age groups. Now, it does obviously involve some additional logistics and that will have to be planned through, but it's not insurmountable. And I, I expect that there will still be engagement and involvement of GPs in that as well. And as Paul Reid said today, they just need a couple of days, this decision only having been made yesterday, to work through and plan out the logistics. So by, the, by next week, we should know all the detail. What do you make of the government's uh, way that it's dealing with the issue of mandatory quarantine and seems to be avoiding having mass quarantine centres rather than leaving people travel on to self-isolate or quarantine in their own homes, possibly with other people? Well, it's been a very slow journey for the government to make this decision. They've obviously made a decision for what are called Category 2 countries, uh, currently Brazil and South Africa, to have uh, designated quarantine centres, but the progress towards that has been slow. For the last 24 hours now, we have at least had a clear policy. That is, it's an obligation to quarantine at home, not simply advice. And there's a penalty of €2,500 or six months imprisonment for failing to go to the place you've identified on your passenger locator form. And crucially, if you arrive into the country via Northern Ireland, that same obligation arises. I think there's a particular weakness, though. We do require people to come 
with a negative PCR test. But if they do, or they're subject to a fine for doing that, they're simply allowed to go on home. And I think if, we, if people have demonstrated that they're not trustworthy enough to come with a clean test, can we really trust them to go home and stay home for the 14 days? And I think that's an issue that we need to look at again. Now, something else I want to ask you about that has been the source of some political controversy has been the decision to pay the Secretary General of the Department of Health an enhanced salary of 291,000 for the future, an increase of about 80,000 euro. What do you make of that and the likely appointment of Robert Watt to that position? Well, two, two separate issues there. If we accept that the current going rate for a Secretary General of any government department is, I think, 212,000, there's no doubt in my mind that the most challenging, complex job as Secretary General in the department, in any department, in any line department, is that of Secretary General in Health. So if any department deserves its Secretary General to be paid at a higher rate, it would be the Department of Health. That's a decision government has made, and there's now a, a recruitment process to fill that job. The temporary move so far of Robert Watt, as I understand it, at the request of, of the Thesha, is, in my view, a really good move. He's the most senior civil servant ever to head the department. Because of his experience in the Department for Public Expenditure, I think he will be a real addition to the Department of Health and could be a game-changer, not just in the present circumstances, but also in terms of implementing Slauncher Care, the real reform programme that will have to proceed once we get COVID under control. So the two separate issues but I think he's the right man for the job, certainly for now. I wish him well if he's applied for the job. And if there is any department that deserves a higher rate of pay for its Secretary-General, it's certainly the Department of Health. OK, we'll leave it there with you. Thank you very much, Tony O'Brien, for joining us here on The Tonight Show. After the break, more mixed messages from government over travel and new Garda powers on home quarantine come into force. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Well, we're joined now via Skype by Paddy Mallon, consultant in infectious diseases at St. Vincent's University Hospital, Finnegal TD Fergus O'Dowd and Social Democrats TD Holly Kearns. But if I can start with you, Paddy, at least there's some good news in that the pressure in the hospitals seems to be easing a little bit. But how worried are you that if we don't curtail travel into the country, that things could get worse again? Well, good evening, Matt. I think that the, the issue around travel is not really for the here and now. It's for what our plan is moving forward. If we look back to 
the last two lockdowns that we've had. The, the first lockdown that we had that was so successful that ended up in single figures in the summer last year. What, what happened over the summer was that we, we seeded our community with new viruses from overseas. And we see that within the second wave, that the predominant virus within our second wave was a virus that was effectively imported to the country over the summer through travel. And then again, at the start of the third wave, what we're seeing once again in the last four or five weeks is another example of the impact of another imported variant of the virus into the country starting off in early December. As Dr. Gaskin said earlier on, now accounts for about 75% of the cases in the country over a very short period of time. So travel is critically important, always has been, to the evolution of this pandemic and to what happens when we come out of these lockdowns. And we really need to learn from the mistakes of the past, put the measures in place now, so that we, when we start to come out of this next lockdown, which has been very difficult for everybody, that we don't see reseeding of viral infections within our community from people traveling into the country. Fergus O'Dowd, that would seem to imply that there should be some sort of government ban on people leaving the country this year for non-essential reasons. And that, yeah. following on what Dr. Killian de Gascon said as well, that people in, coming into the country should be made go to mandatory detention centres like they go to in New Zealand and Australia. Sure. Why won't you do that? Well, I think, first of all, people coming into the country, if you're from a Schedule 1 country, which is your, deemed to be a low-risk country, you must have a negative PCP and you must mandatory isolate in your destination, which would be the home, uh, for, for a period of 14 days. Alternatively, within five days, if you get another negative PCP, then you're free to communicate or to, to move around. Uh, people who come from level two countries, such as Killian said earlier, uh, Brazil and, and, and South America uh, and obviously South Africa, they must mandatory isolate in a hotel. Yeah, so, but actually, so, he also made it yeah. quite clear that he's concerned about people coming from other places, of course he is, new variations. Right. So does yeah. that not imply that everybody should be going to these hotels? Yeah. And also, are you not taking an awful lot on faith that people will actually just go home and behave themselves for two weeks? Well, obviously, the Gardaí do police that, and they do... Oh. They do no, no, but well, the address, the passenger location form has your identity. You've seen how much of a failure that's been. Yeah, well, well let's, let's, let's see what happens now, because I, I accept and I acknowledge the points that are being made. We need to do a lot more. But nevertheless, we must remember that this came initially from China. One person uh, had it and then it spread around the whole world. So it's hitting millions of people. So inevitably, until everybody is vaccinated, there'll always be a risk. Holly, what do you it make of that? It sounds to me like you're uh, contradicting yourself in relation to that, Fergus, say one person initially got it in China and it spread around the world. Well, so in relation to mandatory quarantining, yeah. Obviously, we need to work to keep the virus out. And, you know, we know that in, in relation to the new variants, that it is absolutely essential to have mandatory quarantining, hotel quarantining, and that there is no... There still isn't an actual quarantining system. Asking people to quarantine, and the mixed, mes mixed message is an understatement. There's multi-messaging in relation to this from different ministers. Quarantine in your room, quarantine in the house. It's not being policed. Yeah. Um, we know that 75% of the cases in Ireland now are from the UK variant. We need to work seriously to keep the Brazilian variant out, which hasn't been detected yet. In order to do that, we will need... Man what do you mean, of course, but yeah. the government hasn't well, done well, that yet. And everybody everybody in Ireland respect, is doing their yeah. bit to bring the numbers down. But we're all doing Again, yeah. again. But let me go and, back to, and what we need now is a point? bit of hope yeah. in relation to when we get these numbers down again, that the government will do their bit, like yeah. everybody else is, in relation to keeping yeah. 
new variants out, keeping those numbers down and allowing us to return to opening up society and economy because it is clear now, despite the government narrative, that society is in opposition to economy. These are two sides of the same coin. My sister lives in New Zealand. I talk to her regularly. She's out every weekend. She's going on weekend trips away. She's having a great time. The return to life. We lost they lost 25 people in New Zealand. We lost 1,000 people last month. So it's simply not good enough. Yeah, no, no, I think the points you're making are, are, are very true. But to go back to the point, it started with one individual, one person that got it first and it spread around the world. And the problem is that it'll always be there. I mean, that's the point. This is never going to go away, ultimately. The second point Sorry, is Fergus, that, Fergus, no, I you can't. You, you, it's like the flu. There's a couple of issues, problems there. Hold on a second. You, you would hope that the vaccines yeah. will mean that it can be managed. No, of course. But, but, if you but until, everybody, take, until everybody is vaccinated... But then you're making a very strong no, but, argument for mandatory detention Can I make the point, please? And I'm happy to, to hear what you have to say. Unless everybody is vaccinated, there'll always be somebody with it somewhere in the world. That is a fact. The more people that are vaccinated, the less likely you are to get it or transmit it. But the fact is, you know, the, the, the fact is that it, it is always there. It's just like influenza every year. Every year you vary your vaccine and every year you, you, you find the right strain and you keep it out of the community. But you cannot and you're wrong. You cannot, you cannot stop it from travelling. Well, actually, let's stop people from travelling. No, yes. Sorry, about, but you're talking, no, but you're about, talking about in about, relation no, to as well. Oh, from certain countries, no. we'll introduce quarantining. No, have you ever heard of a connecting flight? Because the rest of no, us have, have, and we know that that I is not a, going to be effective. I have, of course, and I appreciate fully what your leader said about it didn't come in on the wind. It didn't. It came in with an individual. That is absolutely true. But but the real point is this: that if we continue to reduce our travel, if we keep our economy going at the same time and try and get people back we to work. We can't keep our economy but, going at the same time we when can. we're only reducing we travel can. rather than yeah. introducing mandatory just, quarantining. No, can I, no, but can, I, I, I want to make one other point, no, if I may. Spontaneous mutation is another point. in infectious diseases. What do you make of what you've been hearing there? I guess the first thing I'd say is that this is not flu. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen a flu season that's nearly wrecked our health system, that it has ended up with a few thousand people in hospital with one condition. Uh, the, the fact that we, we look into the future, that we can live with a pandemic respiratory coronavirus, I, I don't think anyone's really thought that through in any great detail. The solution lies here with keeping the numbers of viral transmissions in our country as low as possible. And I'm glad to see finally that there's a recognition of the role that travel plays, the vital role of controlling our border biosecurity plays in attaining that goal. That goal gets us back socialising, gets our kids back in education, gets the domestic economy going again. Travel is one of the key factors that we need to address to do that. And the measures that are being introduced at the minute, I fully support the measures being introduced at the minute, how effective they are, is going to be directly related to how well they're implemented. And that's Paddy, going to be in the next few weeks. But Paddy, you're a Belfast man living in Dublin. So what about the difficulties posed by the border on this island and different ways of doing things in the north to the south? So we are not New Zealand. And you know the, the narrative here is littered with absolutes. You know, we're littered with zero COVID. We're also littered with, well, we can't get to zero COVID because we've got a border. The bottom line is that no plan is going to be perfect, but it's not a reason not to try. What we have to do is take every measure possible to get the numbers in our community as low as possible. 
And if that means that we end up restricting travel coming into the country to airports and our airports, that will help greatly. It won't help people as they come across the border. It won't be 100%, but it doesn't necessarily need to be 100%. Um, the, the lack of perfection is not a reason not to act. But Fergus O'Dowd, there are reports of considerable amounts of traffic still coming across the border. Why sure. is that when there are checkpoints all over the country to stop people going more than five kilometres from their home? Well, the guard, and yet yeah. that traffic over the border continues? Well, I live in a border county and the guards are on the roads in my town. They're on the roads today. I'll meet them tonight going home and they'll be, on the, they'll be, they'll be within five kilometres of the border as well. I mean, th there are people working and living both sides of the border. That is a fact. There are thousands of border crossings. Sorry, there are hundreds of border crossings. There are thousands of people passing each day. But, but, but you are right, Paddy, that what we need is a, 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 a solution for the whole island. Uh, and that, that, that has been the difference difficulty to come to the same point on that. And, and that is the answer. How, and if, what's if the, the Social same, Democrats' yeah. answer to this? Because if you want to clamp down on our ports and airports, what do you want in relation to the border? I think we need an all-island approach would be a, a more preferable solution than border controls. That, that is easier sense. said than done, isn't it? It, it is, is easier it said is. than done. And I know it is complicated. Yeah. I know it is technical yeah. and I know it is sensitive. But to have a political ideology that opposes saving lives is simply unacceptable. Yeah. And that you know, that, that that hasn't happened is the biggest failure in political leadership on both side of the, sides of the border. Yeah, it's a I, true tragedy. There hasn't been a better attempt made for an all-island approach yeah. in order to save lives Part on both sides the of the border. Is different on Part of the problem is the there ha hasn't been That's the political the will to try hard need, enough yeah, to save lives. I, I don't agree. I, I don't agree. Certainly, it's certainly... Do you think the there is a political ideology no, that is acceptable, no, I, I, that sacrifices no, lives? Not at all. But what you need is the same medical opinion to be dominant. In other words, if the medical advice in the North is the same as the medical advice in the South, then... then and in both, order to do no, that, we need leadership on both sides no, but of the you border need, to but try but you, but, but at you, least yeah, and work together. Of course, but what you need is the consensus, the medical consensus to act the same way. And that's what we want. OK, and that's what I, we need. I need to get one last word in with Paddy Mallon <clears throat> before we go to a break. Uh, Paddy, we're going to be talking a lot about cancer after the break. How are hospitals doing in dealing with issues at present other than COVID-19? So the, the big difference between this wave and, for example, the first wave, despite the fact that hospitalizations have been through the roof and despite the, the unfortunate mortality that we're seeing, is that the majority of hospitals have, this time around, attempted to maintain essential services, and that includes cancer services. But there should be no doubt that while ICUs remain working over capacity, and while we're still dealing with over a 1,000 acute beds in a hospital, even today, being used for a single condition, that is going to have impacts on how we manage other conditions. Uh, and that's another reason. Get the numbers low. Keep them low because we've got, still got a lot of catch-up to do in terms of maintaining the general health of our population. And the longer this goes on, the way it is at the moment, the longer that catch-up is going to take and the, the more extended non-COVID-related illness that we're going to see as a result of, of what's happened in the last six to eight weeks. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Dr. Paddy Mallon from Bumidas. Holly Kearns and Fergus O'Dowd are going to stay with us because today marks World Cancer Awareness Day. And after the break, we'll be hearing from the Good Glow podcast presenter, Georgie Crawford, on the importance of getting checked. Imagine. 
imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. Well, it's World Cancer Awareness Day, and to mark that, we're joined now by the presenter of the Good Glow podcast and breast cancer ambassador, Georgie Crawford. Georgie, thank you very much for joining us. Tragically, cancer accounts for one in four deaths in this country. Can you tell me a little bit about your own experience as a young mother to discover that you had cancer? It was 2017 and I was diagnosed with breast cancer seven months after having my first baby. So it was a complete and utter shock to me. It was stage two um, and there was no breast cancer in my family. Breast cancer wasn't even on my radar. So it's been a long road. I've had chemotherapy, radiotherapy, two surgeries, a round of IVF and I'm on a drug called tamoxifen now. So I'm three years clear, thank God, and hopefully I can continue to stay well. Which is great to hear. But tell us about the importance of early diagnosis, because a lot of people, I think, are concerned at present that with COVID, people are reluctant to present with symptoms to their doctor. How important is it when you have a suspicion to do something about it quickly? I found my lump in the middle of the night by complete accident. My hand fell against my chest. And the fact of the matter is, is that breast cancer is happening to, to women under 50 as well as women over 50. So I think at this time with COVID, we need to be hyper aware of our own health. We need to know the signs and symptoms of cancer and we need to be checking ourselves regularly. I know that if you do find something abnormal that you can ring your GP and you will be referred to a breast clinic. But I suppose my message is, is to act fast because early detection saves lives. Um, so I think you just need to be super aware of what's going on in your own body at the moment. Of course, there are so many different types of cancer and particularly for men, prostate cancer is a major issue that we think is not addressed quickly enough in many cases. But you have this podcast in which you get to talk to people. How important is it to talk out the issues in relation to a diagnosis and treatment of cancer? I think when I started my podcast, I thought it might connect with a few people. Little did I know that actually in life, we all go through things. We all go through tough times. So I started to get people on to tell their stories of overcoming. And I think it's just become this amazing community where people share their stories. They feel like it's a safe place to do so. And I suppose my message is just to check yourself and, and look after yourself. And it doesn't have to get to the point of illness before you know, you start giving some of your energy to yourself. As a young mom, I was so career driven. I just wanted, you know, to succeed and and do well and be the best person and the best mom. But I wasn't giving that energy to myself. So through my journey, I have started on this 
uh, wellness path, I suppose you would call it. Um, my life is completely transformed and I do lots of things now that fill up my own tank. And I suppose my message to people is just to look after yourself. You know, it doesn't have to get to the point of illness before you take care of yourself. Georgie Crawford, thank you so much for being with us here on The Tonight Show. Thank you. Well, Social Democrats TD Holly Kearns and Fergus O'Dowd of <coughs> Fine Gael are still with us. And Holly, if I can go back to you, the treatments for cancer are so much better, the survival rates are so much higher, and yet we have about 9,000 people a year who die of cancer here in Ireland. How fearful are you that, unfortunately, many cases may have been missed last year or initial treatment delayed because of COVID? Yeah, I mean, there's 45,000 diagnoses of cancer annually in Ireland. There's an increase of about three or 4% annually. And we know that cancer services were overstretched before the pandemic. Um, so needless to say, there'll be massive pressure. Um, I remember in the summer that the dog tracks had opened before many cancer services had reopened. So I think, I hope we get our priorities right this time around. Um, and we obviously need massive um, investment in public health, including cancer screening and, and cancer services in general. Um, you know, it, it's World Cancer Day and it's great to hear from um, survivors of it. And I think it's really important as well to mention on World Cancer Day, the cervical check scandal. And I think probably the whole nation yesterday saw Lindsay Bennett um, speaking in relation to the settlement with the HSE. Um, and I think it's you know really important to point to Vicky Phelan and her call-outs today as well, that like, who do the HSE think that they're fooling in relation to still not expecting liability and paying out these settlements at the same time? The the, the Tónaiste, the then Taoiseach, <coughs> the leader of your party, Fergus, promised sure. that no woman would be dragged through the courts. That was a promise. And the HSE are fighting dying women to the grave in courts today. But that's, that is what is actually happening is true in that a woman who's very seriously ill did go to court and sadly I regret very much that that had to happen. Alan Kelly and today said there's another 200 <coughs> potential cases. There are 200, 221 I think is the number, 221 plus is the group that acti that, that articulates. Is, apparently 200 yeah. cases could come I, to the court. Of course. Well, can, can how could that happen when okay, the Taoiseach made, sure. when he was Taoiseach, made a sure. solemn commitment course, that these yeah. women would not have well, to Matt, can I just give you the fact, the fact is that what you're saying is right, it did happen. And there are women who are very seriously ill and they, they, they have now an option since December, which in relation to the cervical check uh, tribunal. I'm not suggesting that anybody wants to go anywhere. Sorry, this tribunal wasn't set up I, I, in a way that the people to, who were affected hold on, by hold the scandal set up. Hold on, I think fair is fair here now. I'm entitled to my speak, you're entitled no, to No, just make your point. Right. My point is that that tribunal is there since December. And if somebody wishes to go before that tribunal, they still have the option, should they wish to go to the courts if they're not happy with the, with, with the award that they may get. So I think the whole idea uh, is that people would hopefully go to the tribunal and that they would get, uh, not this, you can never be compensated for what's happened and it's very sad and it's very difficult for the families and particularly the people who are ill and, and, and their children. It's just unbelievable, the pain that they have to go through. But 
the, the problem is that what we need to do is to make sure in that parallel process that there is, act, that there is faster mediation. Now, the establishment of a tribunal is positive. Uh, I think the, the Tarnish has said today that he is, he is absolutely saying that we must have uh, the state claims agency where there is no question about liability will fast-track all those cases, as many as will come before them. Now, I don't have the figures. Although the state claims agency no, was central I, to bringing Vicky Field and others to court I, I, in the first Absolutely, place. absolutely so. And that's why he's saying that if there is a no question about admitting liability, that it should be very fast. And the okay. second point is that if they do go to court, you know, that, 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 they, that they will also be supported in terms of any cost they might incur if they withdraw their Holly, case. fair enough that there is a tribunal in place, mediation is available? It's important to note as well, though, that the women who were affected by the cervical check scandal were not happy, or many of them were not happy with the way the tribunal was set up. They wanted it done differently, and that didn't happen. That's what we constant true. that That's is true. true, and what no, we consistently true, see is men that, in positions of power telling I, I women what's best, what is best for them, Hold and on, not listening to them. A question Holly, and you can respond a, a when Holly's finished. Fergus, we'll let Holly finish then. Yeah, but she can't tell untruths here. I'm not telling untruths. That is true. And the women actually said. That they, that, they, that, they, that they did accept... You're clearly not listening to women, and this is something that we see routinely from this state. No, Men in positions of power telling women what is best for them that's without actually consulting them. I think it's very no, important to actually no, directly quote what Vicky Phelan that, has said on Twitter today, that yeah. not enough was done by the state. Right. You I accept are, that. The, the HSE is dragging yeah. women through the courts to their grave because but of the, over this. That, that it's, it's not okay for you to say that. It's the false narrative. And I would like no. to actually just read out what Vicky has called for, because sure. it's very important. No, Acknowledgement of the harm done, <clears throat> except that the programme did fail and engage meaningly, meaningfully with, with uh, advocates okay. for patients. No, that has not been done properly. And if, if, if that is what the women are saying who are affected by it, yeah. then okay, you can't deny well, okay, that. You, yeah. Okay, well, now, I, I think the important thing is to talk about the truth. And the truth is that the tribunal, the cervical... Czech tribunal was accepted by the women's group, the, the 220 plus one they were. And this, the press statement is there if you want to look for it later on. The second thing is, the second thing is, I accept absolutely that, that it shouldn't have to go this way. And nobody wants it to go this way, but it did. And you're quite right, the state did treat these women appallingly. There's no, no doubt about that. And the state claims the agency were Why don't you do better well, well, now, I, then? Do okay, more. I, I would like to... Listen to the I, women. Well, look, look, I am listening to women. And, 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 and you're wrong to say that men... Why was that can, can incredible I make this point, please? girl outside I think this is yesterday, then, talking I, about leaving um, her, her two daughters I behind I, her? I, I, have, I, I have... Look, all I can say is that, as a man, you know, I, I am a father and I'm a grandfather and I, I have grandchildren. I, I would hate their mum to be taken from them or to have an illness like this. So it is wrong to say that men don't care. I didn't say men don't no, care, but, but despite that. Supreme no, no, Court rulings, despite the Scali Holly, report saying Holly, that this programme, seven-day programme, was destined the to fail report. and the state apology, no. the HSE still the Scali, won't take any actual responsibility the Scali, or liability. The they say they deeply said, regret different turns of events, Holly, but don't the, accept anybody. Right, okay. despite, and who do they think they're fooling Holly, when they're paying the, out the settlements? Scali, the Scali report said, that there was catastrophic failure of the system. And that it was destined no, to hold fail. On, hold on now. Yes, of course. Sorry, Fergus, we're losing yes. you in the microphone. There's one sorry, yeah. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, yeah. To finish but but the there was and catastrophic failure of the system. It's very important <clears throat> the women of the country. The testimony given in the Mother and Babies Home Commission, yeah. what has happened to it? 
Yeah, so I think everybody remembers the public disquiet in October in relation to the so-called sealing of the archives of the Commission investigation into the mother and baby homes. Um, it was the first time, I think, in the history that the Dáil server crashed because there were so many emails coming in with opposition to this. And it has only transpired this week that in actual fact, it, that the main concern was witnesses that people's access to their own testimonies. And it has transpired that those testimonies have been deleted. Now, the Data Protection Commission has sought from the Commission the legal basis for why this has happened. Is this the audio recordings? Audio or the recordings, yeah. yes. Do the transcripts I, I, still exist? They didn't take transcripts off them. So it's just gone. They're just gone. And that is yeah. a national scandal. And then, yep. and, you know, COVID well, uh, is so important that sometimes this. these things get lost. But it is important yeah. no, 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 for everyone in the general totally. public. We cannot yeah. tolerate this. And we must very quick response from Fergus. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree absolutely. I saw that report. We spoke about it tonight. It was the first time I saw that they had been destroyed. Uh, but the point is, I want to make the point that men care as much as women. And you're wrong to say I know that, that. many men care no, absolutely just no, as no, much No, but I think, I think it's very important. <laughs> I don't no, but doubt I, that. I, yeah, no, well, I don't either. And I think that we're all on the same page here about getting justice. Okay, well, one okay. point that's really important women. to make is that and the Commission... You might not be saying needs, that, we can't let the Commission the disappear, otherwise we won't be able to establish if we no. can recover these lost I testimonies now. I don't but it's disagree. also very important that before, as the Commission right. is set to dissolve at the end of the month, the Minister still needs to get the copy of the archive, even if the, the Commission is okay, extended. OK, it's an issue we will return to, but that is, unfortunately, all we have time for tonight. <clears throat> Our thanks to Holly Kearns and Fergus O'Dowd for both being with us. I'll be back on radio tomorrow afternoon. Kira will be back here next Monday night at 10 o'clock. For now, stay home, stay safe, enjoy the rugby at the weekend. Good night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 